Would you pray with me? God, thanks for an opportunity to worship you this morning. Thanks for an opportunity to hear from your word. <clears throat> God, in this moment, we just ask that you would open our eyes and ears, God, that you, uh, even as, as we just sang, God, it just means uh, so much to me that we would sing this morning. Um, take my lips uh, this morning, Lord Jesus, and let them be filled with messages from thee. God, that the only thing that would come uh, from my mouth today uh, would be things that you want to be heard in this place. God, we're grateful uh, to be here, we're grateful to have the opportunity to uh, be changed by your word today. And we give you our hearts and we give you our focus and attention now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, I tell you what, I sure appreciate uh, Dr. Arnold uh, doing that piece for us. And, and I, I call him Dr. Arnold because... This is on a podcast and my mom is listening, so I can't call him George. Um, but when we had lunch this week, I did call him George, and I was just so excited. Did you hear Blessed Assurance woven through that? Those of you who are familiar with hymns, did you hear Blessed Assurance woven through that? So uh, when George and I had lunch this week, I told him I was so excited to hear that piece uh, this morning, and, and he definitely did not disappoint. I was more excited uh, than a Pentecostal with a new tambourine, I'll tell you what. So church people get that joke. More excited than a Baptist with a new pair of slacks? How about that? More excited than a Calvinist who was predestined to be excited? Anything? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? No? Okay, good. Thanks, worship team. We're, we're just grateful uh, that you would do that this morning. So uh, I'm really, really glad to be here. If you don't know me, my name is Lucas Cooper. I'm the lead pastor here at Bayview Glen. We're just so thrilled that you would take time out of your weekend, uh, just carve some time out to come worship with us, to come make much of Jesus with us, to come hear from his word. And what we've been doing is journeying through uh, the book of Luke in a series called Snapshots, because what we've said is the book of Luke reads like a series of snapshots. It reads like an Instagram account, or it reads like a, a photo album. We just have these, these pictures, these snapshots from the life of Jesus. And today we're actually looking at two and we'll get there in a minute, but before we get there, I just wanted to kind of start with this idea that, that do, have you noticed that our world is set up to favor the competent? Our world is set up to favor the competent. Our, our world kind of favors those who are naturally uh, smart or naturally good looking or, or naturally, you know, skilled at something or they've developed skill. Our world kind of favors those people. And so uh, if you don't believe me that our world is set up to favor those who are competent or skilled or good looking or whatever, uh, watch TV. Just about every show on TV, like, you know, you got Shark Tank, which set up to favor the competent, right? Do you watch The Bachelor? What a parade of debauchery that thing is, but it's set up to favor those who are pretty or good looking or, 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 or smooth talkers or whatever, or Survivor. Do you watch, do you remember when Survivor, is that even still on anymore? Are they doing like, you know, like, like second rate Survivor now, like Survivor, you know, Pickering? Is that what they're doing now? Is that, is that what's going on? Um, but it's set up to favor those who are skilled, those who can survive, hence the reason. And we even, we even you know, uh, downtown right now, uh, Robin Hood is running right now because it's about somebody who robs from the rich and gives to the poor because, because we know that our world is set up to favor the rich. That's why we say the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, right? We have this world that's set up to favor the competent. We have uh, words and language like the cycle of poverty because when you're in kind of the cycle of riches, the rich get richer, and when you're in the cycle of poverty, the poor get poorer, and you just kind of get stuck there because our world isn't set up to favor those who 
are not naturally skilled, not naturally good looking, not naturally something, got something to, to kind of bring to the table that the world values. It's set up to favor the competent. And, he, and here's what's interesting to me. I think that we know intuitively, listen close, that we know intuitively that the way our world works, favoring the competent, the beautiful, the rich, the powerful, I know that we know intuitively that that's not how it's supposed to work. I feel like we know intuitively that our world is a little messed up in that way. I mean, we don't walk around thinking all the time, wow, the world I live in favors a certain group of people and that's messed up. But I think, because I think we've kind of gotten used to it. We've, we've kind of numbed ourselves and dulled ourselves to it. But every now and then, on a very rare occasion, a situation or a moment or a person or a circumstance flips those expectations on their head. And all of a sudden, the world does not favor the competent anymore, but it favors those who maybe don't have a lot to bring to the table in terms of what the world values. You know, someone or something kind of rattles the cage a little bit, steps outside the matrix a little bit, if you will, and begins to love the unlovable, to cheer for those who have little or nothing to celebrate, to champion those who have no advocate. And when we see that stuff happen, we cry, don't we? And we think, isn't our world messed up? And shouldn't it be more like that? Man, our world would be a better place if it were set up to favor folks like that. You don't believe me? Let me tell you the story of Jason McElwain. I was going to show a YouTube video today of Jason McElwain, but, um, but copyright says that I can't do that, and we want to be above board, so I'm just going to tell you a story. Jason McElwain uh, is a young man. He's graduated from high school now, but uh, throughout his entire elementary, junior high, and high school career, Jason had a very tough time because he's autistic. And Jason absolutely loves basketball, loves, loves, loves basketball, but he couldn't really participate on the basketball team because he had a difficult time engaging and a difficult time kind of, you know, uh, getting through that and, and, and managing that. And so what Jason did in high school was he participated on the basketball team as the basketball team's manager. He, he, he showed up every week in a tie. He helped him practice. He was a water, water boy and all different kind of stuff. He was the basketball team's manager. And, you know, they had a coach and an assistant coach, adults and teachers. But Jason was the basketball team's manager. That's Jason up there on the right. You, you think he takes his job seriously? Sorry about the, uh, the lack of quality on the picture there. You think he takes his job seriously? Look at his friends trying to calm him down a little bit because Jason is passionate about basketball. Well, at the end of his junior year, uh, the last game of his junior year, his coach came to him right before the game and said, Jason, I, I want you to suit up today. I don't want you to wear a tie. I don't want you to wear slacks. I'm going to give you a jersey and, and shorts, and, and we're going to have you suit up. And, and you're not going to play, but I just want you to know what it's like to suit up, what it feels like to be in a uniform on the bench and not in a tie. You're not a manager anymore. You're a player on this team. I want you to know how that feels. And with about four and a half minutes left in the game in a little bitty high school in Rochester, New York, the coach stood up and looked down on the end of the bench and said, all right, Jason, you're checking in. And in this YouTube video, you can see him like, you know, he's got a headband on, like a sweatband on, you know, and he's kind of panicked. Like he doesn't, like, is this for real? Is this really happening? Am I really going into this game? And all of his friends, I mean, the gym is full, the, the, the stadium, there, the high school gym they're playing in is absolutely full, and all of his friends have uh, cutouts of Jason's head on popsicle sticks, and they're all going crazy for him, you know? There's Jason, Jason, Jason goes in the game. 
And Jason walks into the game, and, and, and on, this, on this, it's all, just Google it, YouTube it. So Jason walks into the game, and, and the first opportunity he gets, the first time he touches the ball, he launches a three-pointer. And you're thinking, man, this is going to be good. And he misses by an absolute mile. I mean, not even close. And they do an interview after the game, he's, you know, after the game, and he looks at the camera, and he goes, yeah, it wasn't even close. I don't even know why I shot it. It wasn't close, you know? And Jason's a good shooter. Jason spends a lot of time in the gym shooting by himself. And the next time Jason gets the ball, he gets a jump shot and, again, misses by an absolute mile. And you're going, oh, no, this is going to be bad. And the coach in the interview goes, you know, I literally, on the sidelines, he said, I literally just stood there, I closed my eyes, and I bowed my head, and I thought, oh, dear God, could the world just for a moment not favor the competent? Could something happen for this young man who, who just loves basketball? He said, God, could you just do that? So he opens his eyes. Next time Jason touches the ball, he launches a three-pointer and just absolutely drains it. And the whole gym goes berserk. I mean, they go absolutely bananas. There he is shooting the three-pointer that he made. Hang on on that next picture on Hara. We'll get there. So he, he makes a three-pointer. This is the third shot he, take, shot he takes, and everybody goes crazy. Next time down the floor, they put the ball in Jason's hands. Three-pointer. Boom. Drains it. Next time down the floor, put the ball in Jason's hand. Boom. Drains it. And every time he drains it, the crowd and the students go crazier and crazier. And you're looking at the other team's bench. These kids that are getting scored on are going crazier and crazier because they know Jason's story. They know he's autistic. They know he's never got a chance to play. And they're going crazier and crazier. By the time he's done, Jason drains six three-pointers in a row. He hits two free throws. He ends the game with 20 points. And in, in fact, one of those three-pointers, the sixth three-pointer, was a buzzer beater to end the game. And here's what happens at the end of the game. They put Jason on their shoulders, his team and the other team, and they carry Jason off the floor. You see, there's moments in our life where, where we hear those stories and we think the world should not favor the powerful. When the world favors the weak, when the broken get healed, when the outcasts like Jason get included, when the weak become strong, when the forgotten get celebrated, when the powerless become powerful, when the lonely find community, we think to ourselves, now that's how the world is supposed to work. And that's exactly the kind of world that Jesus entered into. A world that favored the powerful, a world where the outcasts were forgotten about, a world where brokenness and sickness and fractured relationships prevailed. And Jesus comes in and he begins to flip expectations on their head. When he enters into public ministry in Luke chapter 4, he begins to flip expectations on their head and he sets up a kingdom where the powerless become powerful, where the forgotten about get remembered, where the lonely find community. He flips expectations on their head. If you are jotting notes down, here's our bottom line truth, and we're just going to unpack this our entire time today in the book of Luke, and it's this. Jot this down. It's Jesus inaugurated an eternal kingdom in which the forgotten are favored. Jesus inaugurated an eternal kingdom that lasts forever, forever, eternal kingdom in which the forgotten, the lost, the broken, the sick, the hurting 
find favor for the very first time. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in his, we're not going to, don't, don't turn your Bibles yet, I'm just going to read this to you, and it's up here on the screen. Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth, he's worshiping in a synagogue, and he gets an opportunity to kind of initiate and kick off his public ministry, and he reads this from the book of Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's he's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Look up here on the screen. All the key words are highlighted for our purposes today. Who is Jesus talking to? The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, the forgotten about, the lonely, the powerless, the weak, the sick, the hurting, Poor, captives, blind, and oppressed. And what does he say? I am here to inaugurate an eternal kingdom in which you find favor for the very first time. And not only does he announce it that he's going to do it, check this out. Jesus always backs up word with action. It's crazy. It's crazy. In Luke chapter 4, verse 31 through 37, Jesus heals a man that was possessed by a demon. This man would have been an outcast. He would have been lonely. He would have been forgotten about. He would have been ostracized. He wouldn't have had a lot of respect in his community. He wouldn't have had a lot of hope and a lot of stuff to look forward to. He wouldn't have had a lot of resources. The world would not have favored him because he was not one of the competent in Luke chapter 4, verse 38, verses 38 through 41, Jesus heals a woman. It's Peter's mother-in-law, by the way. And women, don't panic here. But in this society, 2,000 years ago, women were not favored. They were forgotten about. They, they were weak. They, they, they didn't have a lot of opportunity. They didn't have a lot of opportunity to build skill. And they didn't have a lot of, of say in society. And Jesus begins to minister to and heal a woman. Then in Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls fishermen to be his followers. Fishermen. Not politicians, not those who were strong, not Herod, not Caesar, not those who had a lot of money or a lot of competency or a lot of skill. Jesus calls fishermen to be his followers. He's ministering to the poor, the oppressed, the blind, the weak, those who are not competent, and he's bringing favor their way for the very first time. And then in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, it gets really, really crazy. It's like escalating all the time with Jesus. More and more people who are forgotten about, more and more people who are ostracized, more weak. I want to be around them. I want to care for them. I want to show them favor. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, we pick up our first snapshot for the day. So pick up your Bible if you've got your Bible. Luke chapter 5 will be in verse 12. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can use that. Please don't underline or jot notes down in that because, you know, we want you to put that back so somebody else can use it. But use your Bible, use your, uh, use your phone or whatever if you brought something like that. If not, the, the uh, scripture is going to be up here on the screen. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. Jesus is ministering, he's, he's, he's inaugurated his public ministry, he's teaching and he's healing. And Luke chapter 5 verse 12 says, While he was in one of those cities, there came a man full of leprosy. We know from the book of Matthew that the city was Capernaum. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. 
and immediately the leprosy left him. And he, that's Jesus, charged him, that's the man who's just been cleansed of leprosy, to tell no one, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded, a proof for them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. Now, let's picture this together. Let's walk through this process. Here's what's going on. The first thing is Jesus is in a city, likely Capernaum. Like I said, we know that from the book of Matthew. And a man who is full of leprosy, it's highlighted up here on the screen, he's full of leprosy, comes along to Jesus. Now, I actually debated, because I did a little bit of research the last couple days and looking at pictures online, I debated whether or not to show you pictures of leprosy this morning. And, and, and I debated and said no, because they're actually very, very disturbing. If you want to know what leprosy looks like, Google it. Just check out the images. Do a little bit of research. But not only did this man have leprosy, but Luke, who is what by trade? A physician now. He knows what he's looking at. He knows what he's seeing. He knows the reports that have been given to him. And he records that this man is full of leprosy. What he has is a bacterial infection that that causes your your skin and your nerves to kind of come apart at the seams a little bit. It results in loss of feeling in your extremities, and so you can lose fingers and toes and even parts of limbs and things and not even feel them. It, it causes deformity in the face and scar tissue to build up and sores and lesions to develop. Uh, I didn't know this about leprosy, but it, it affects your eyes and your esophagus, so it makes it very, very difficult to breathe, and it even gives people who have leprosy, it, it makes them unable to blink. So if you've ever watched movies and there's a leper in the movies and they're wearing a blindfold, it's because lepers, a lot of times, someone who is full of leprosy for sure would have been unable to blink. This is the man that comes before Jesus. He's broken, he's weak, he's sick, and he needs something. It says in verse 12 there that he fell on his face before Jesus. This is both an act of worship and it, and it, and it, and it signifies his shame. He's scared, he's alone, he has nothing. And he comes to Jesus and falls on his face and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. I love that phrase, if you will, because here's what it indicates. He's not questioning whether or not Jesus is able, he's just questioning whether or not he's willing. He's like, I know for sure you can do this, but if you will, if you choose, I know for sure you can do this. And then look what he requests Jesus to do. That word clean there, you can make me clean, in the original language, he's not talking about physical healing now. That word is, is cleansing so that he could be restored and, and worship in the temple again. So he could be restored to community. Because a leper, in that day and age, if they ever came into a city, they would literally have to walk through the city shouting, unclean! unclean, unclean. They would have to pronounce that. And this man, being full of leprosy, likely had leprosy for 10, 20, even 30 years. And he had likely not been touched in that time. He had not entered the temple in that time. No one had hugged him in that time. His relationship with his friends have gone away. His relationship with his family would have gone away. He had nothing left. And all he wants from Jesus is that I would be cleansed 
spiritually now. I want to be restored so I can worship in the temple. I want to be restored so I have community. I want to be restored to my family. I know that healing of leprosy gets me there, but my ultimate desire is, if you will, you can make me clean. And now I love Jesus' response. I just absolutely love Jesus' response. It says, Jesus says, I will be clean. But that's not what the text says. Look back at verse 13. Look at what Jesus does. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, I love that. Because this is a man, because he had leprosy, no one would have wanted to contract it, so they would not have touched him. No, no one would have, wanted been, would have wanted to be rendered unclean and, and not be able to go in the temple and not be able to interact with community. No one would have wanted what he had. So the likelihood is, again, because he's full of leprosy, he would have had it for a very long time, that he had not been touched. No hug, no handshake, no pat on the back, no make a good catch and get a good game. None of that. Can't feel the cheek of my kid touching up against mine when she wakes up in the morning. Couldn't hold my wife's hand. No one had touched him. And Jesus doesn't just say, I will be clean. He reaches out and touches this man. Verse 13 says, immediately, right away, the leprosy left him. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus says to this man, go show yourself to the priest because Leviticus 14 dictates, it delineates how a leper is to be rendered clean and actually identified or recognized as being healed. You've got to show yourself to the priest and you've got to jump through some hoops. And so Jesus says, do as Moses commanded in verse 14, says do as Moses commanded and go show yourself to the priest so that they are sure that you're clean. And verse 14, I love this, I love what, uh, verse 15, sorry, what Luke writes. It says, uh, great crowds began to gather. Well, no duh. Like you're healing lepers, like you're starting to gain an audience, right? <laughs> Look at second, our second snapshot. We'll get to some application points in a minute. Look at our second snapshot. Look at verse 17. It says, on one of those days, as he was, as he was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Now the audience has changed. Now it's not just great crowds. Now it's not just the sick and the hurting and the broken. Now because Jesus begins to flip expectations on their head and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the competent folks that the world favored. And Jesus is showing favor to those who who have nothing to bring. And so these guys are showing up going, what in the world are you trying to do? What in the world are you trying to do flipping expectations on their head? So Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. They've come from all over going, what are you doing? And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now picture this with me. 
First century, or first century Palestine, they're in Capernaum still, and Jesus is in a home, and there are so many people there wanting to hear from him that they've packed into this house, and they're spilling out the doors, and there's people on the windows, and, and people everywhere, all over, just to get within earshot of Jesus. And these friends of this man, some men were bringing on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, some friends of this man said, if we can just get him before Jesus, Maybe, just maybe. And they get up on the roof of this house and in first century Palestine, a roof would have been made of like straw and mud and that's what the tiles would have been made of. And they begin to dig in the top of this house while Jesus is in the house teaching. Like, could you imagine if I was teaching here and all of a sudden we just see like sheetrock falling from up top? It was a little distracting, right? But Jesus is cool as a cucumber, man. As Stuart Scott used to say, cooler than the other, other side of the pillow, right? And he's just, he just keeps teaching. He just keeps teaching as tiles get removed and straw gets removed and stuff's falling down. And they lower this man and the crowd kind of parts and they lower this man right down to the feet of Jesus. And everybody knows he's paralyzed. Everybody knows he can't get up from the bed. Everybody knows that the world does not favor this man, that he's not had opportunities, that he's not had uh, any kind of, you know, success in life because he, he has a disability and they lower him before Jesus and everybody's waiting on what? Tell me. For, for healing. They're waiting for Jesus to touch his legs just like he touched a leper and this guy to go, oh, awesome, and get up and walk away. So Jesus in this moment, in this uh, pregnant pause, in this silence, in this expectation and anticipation, you could cut the tension with a knife. Jesus speaks in verse 20. He says, and when they saw, and when he saw their faith, and when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> Which is not exactly what he's come for, right? It's not exactly what he was looking for. But Jesus knows that that's far more important. Jesus knows that his spiritual need is far more important than his physical need. Pick it up in verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In other words, you're claiming to be God and you're not. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? or to say, rise and walk. What's the implication here? The more difficult thing to do is to forgive sin. It's easy to say, rise, pick up your mat and walk, compared to forgiving sin. Verse 24, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on <laughs> and went home, glorifying God. So what happens? 
Jesus heals this man who's been paralyzed. Jesus heals this man who's been forgotten about. Jesus heals this man who's been marginalized in order to demonstrate that he has authority on earth to forgive sin. He meets a physical need as an inroad to meeting a spiritual need. He meets a physical need as proof that he can meet spiritual needs. And what's the response of the crowd that's gathered? It says, an amazement sees them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So what do we learn? What do we learn from these two stories? Jesus reaching out and touching this leper and healing him, making him clean, and Jesus healing a man who was paralyzed for probably most, if not all, of his life. What do we learn from Jesus? And back to our original point, back to our bottom line truth that we started with is that Jesus inaugurated an eternal kingdom in which the forgotten are favored. So we're going to unpack that a little bit and we're going to take some principles from the story. And, and here's what I want to tell you. I'm going to run through three of them real quick. And please don't try to write them all down because I'm going to give you a summary slide. One slide where you can write everything down in one slide so you don't have to, you don't have to jot these all down. We'll get there. But how does it happen that Jesus inaugurates an eternal kingdom in which the forgotten are favored? Here's what Jesus tells us in these three stories. Here's what Luke is telling us. And here are the principles that we can pull. Number one, in God's kingdom, the eternal is more important than the temporal. In God's kingdom, the eternal, what lasts forever is more important than the temporal. In both situations, Jesus is not necessarily prioritized, or he's not he's thinking about what lasts forever. He's thinking about the leper's restoration to spiritual community. He's thinking about the leper's opportunity to worship and he cures a physical disease. He addresses the temporal because he wants to get to the eternal. Same thing with a paralytic. Same thing with this individual who's been paralyzed and he says, rise, pick up your mat and walk. He's thinking about the part of this man who lack, that, that lasts forever and he says, your sins are forgiven you. So in God's kingdom, the eternal is more important than the temporal. Number two, in God's kingdom, spiritual needs are greater than physical needs. Spiritual needs are greater than physical needs. So again, in each case, Jesus meets a physical need as an inroad to addressing a spiritual need. For the leper, it's not about being healed, it's about being clean. It's about spiritual restoration. Uh, for the paralytic, it's about being forgiven. That's the first thing he addresses. Man, your sins are forgiven you. In God's kingdom... Spiritual needs are greater than physical needs. Number three, in God's kingdom, others are more important than me. In God's kingdom, others are more important than me. So, so check this out. In, in story number two, Jesus is fine with the roof falling in on him because others are more important than him. Most importantly, in this first story, verse 13, when Jesus touched him, he's putting himself at risk, isn't he? He's putting himself at risk of contracting leprosy. He's putting his reputation at risk. There'll be people looking at him saying, you're unclean now, you're ostracized, you've touched a leper, we're not gonna touch you, we're not gonna talk to you, and we're gonna kick you out. But Jesus puts all that on the line. He puts his reputation on the line, he puts his health on the line by reaching out and touching this leper because in God's kingdom, Others are more important than me. 
So what does that mean for us? And, and I want you to know that, that if we understand the heart of God, and if we understand God's kingdom, it radically changes the way we behave. We don't talk a lot about behavior around here. We don't talk a lot about behavior modification. But I want you to know that this is where the root of Christian character comes from. It comes from this statement right here. For those who have experienced the kingdom, those who have experienced the kingdom adopt kingdom values. Those who have experienced God's kingdom adopt kingdom values. So it's not necessarily about, uh, I I, kind of pull myself up by the bootstraps, I I, I live a moral life, I, I, I live out Christian character, I do what God has called me to do, but I adopt kingdom values because I've seen the kingdom and it changes the way I behave, it changes the way I see this world, it changes the way I interact with people around me because I see God's kingdom for what it is. You guys ever seen The Matrix? You know the Matrix? I'm about to, if you haven't seen the Matrix, check out for 90 seconds. I'll, I'll bring you back here in a minute when we stop talking about the Matrix. There's this point in the Matrix, right, where Neo, who's played by Keanu Reeves very well, might I add, um, played by Keanu Reeves, he, he, he sees the world for what it really is. And he can no longer engage with the world as it is. He lives in the Matrix. He interacts with the Matrix. He engages with the Matrix. And all of a sudden he's saying stuff like, you know, I know Kung Fu. It's like, no, you don't. But he, he interacts with the matrix. He interacts with this other world because that's the real world. That's what's really going on. And he rejects what he's always lived in, and it radically changes the way he behaves. This is the same thing with people who have experienced God's kingdom now. We're going to stop talking about the matrix. Just come back to me. This is the same thing with people who have experienced God's kingdom. They see those values that Jesus just espoused in his interaction with a paralytic and a leper. And that's this, that the eternal is more important than the temporal, that spiritual needs are greater than physical needs, and that others are more important than me. We're going to apply these here in a minute and we're going to get to some really kind of core questions of of application of what we live out in our behavior. But this is what I want you to know, that those who have experienced the kingdom, who have seen God's kingdom and seen it for what it is and seen that it's eternal and seen that it matters most and have experienced it, adopt kingdom values and it changes behavior. So let's talk about those kingdom values. I'll give, you, I'll give you one slide to summarize all three that we just talked about. In God's kingdom, here we go. In God's kingdom, here's number one. The eternal is greater than the temporal. That which lasts forever is more important that, than that which is going to go away. The kingdom of God his spiritual values for you and me, the part of you, your soul, your spirit that's going to live forever is more important than bricks and mortar. It's more important than your reputation on this earth. It's more important than your money or my money. That's why you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. It's, ne- it's always, the eternal is always more important than the temporal in God's kingdom. Number two, the spiritual is always more important than the physical. In God's kingdom. The spiritual is more important than the physical. Remember that Jesus doesn't heal these, uh, this leper and heal this paralytic just for kicks and giggles or just because he thinks it's a good idea. Why does he do it? So that he can prove 
that he has the authority to address spiritual needs. He uses physical needs, meeting physical needs, as an inroad to meeting spiritual needs. And number three, in God's kingdom, others are greater than me. Do we see it? Do we see it from the text? Others are greater than me. Jesus was happy to put himself at risk by reaching out and touching a leper. Why? Because others are greater than me. Now, let's talk about how we live that out. For those of us who have seen the kingdom of God, for those of us who experience the kingdom of God, for those of us who have said yes to Jesus and are walking with him more and more, we begin to adopt kingdom values. We don't necessarily read the list of do's and don'ts from the scripture and try to apply them to our lives. We adopt kingdom values. We begin to love what God loves. We begin to hate what God hates. We begin to take on what Jesus in his heart held dear those three values that we just talked about. And here is how they apply. Number one, those who have experienced God's kingdom meet physical needs as an inroad to meeting spiritual needs. If in God's kingdom, the spiritual is greater than the physical, and if Jesus used meeting physical needs as an inroad to meeting spiritual needs, then those who have experienced God's kingdom do the same. They meet physical needs as an inroad to meeting spiritual needs. How does that work? I have a a friend named Janet. She lives in the Bay Area, San Francisco, California. She lived in Uganda as a missionary for a long time and recently moved back to the Bay Area. And when she got back to the Bay Area, she got involved in a church there and she was headed to worship and and doing the thing and, 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 and she was connecting a Christian community and she began to think to herself, okay, Okay, if Jesus is most interested in spiritual needs and he met physical needs in order to meet spiritual needs, in order to address spiritual things and things that last forever, then then how am I supposed to live that out here? And especially if Jesus uh, met the physical needs of, of the weak and the broken and the ostracized and the forgotten about, and he turned expectations on their head, how am I supposed to live that out? And Janet got an opportunity uh, to go downtown and start doing nails for free for transgendered prostitutes in the city of San Francisco. And now three days a week, she sits across a table from a transgendered prostitute in San Francisco, and she takes hands in her hands, and she touches them with tenderness and compassion and care, just like Jesus did. And she washes them, and she massages them, and she puts lotion on them, and she says, how is your day? How is your week? How are you doing? Janet has shared with me, you will never you would never believe what comes out of these folks' mouths when I ask, how was your day? You just never believe it. And then she puts nail polish on. She says, oh, your hands look so pretty. Just want you to know I'm here to meet a physical need because God loves you very, very much. He can make you clean. He can restore you. He can forgive sin. Where do you have an opportunity in your life to meet a physical need so that you can meet a spiritual need? Where has God given you the opportunity to meet a physical need in order to meet a spiritual need? Is it buying somebody a cup of coffee that maybe, maybe somebody else 
maybe most people in your life wouldn't buy a cup of coffee for that person? Is it shoveling your neighbor's walk who, who's too elderly to, to do that? Just go over and meet a physical need to say, you know what, I love you, I care for you, especially if that neighbor is a little bit of a curmudgeon, a little bit belligerent. Say, I just want you to know I'm going to meet a physical need for you because God loves you, and he can restore, he can make you clean. If you think about it, I can guarantee you that God has given you an opportunity in your life right now to meet a physical need for someone so that they know that God values their spirit so that they know that God has designed them in a special way, so that they know that being clean and being restored and being made new and being forgiven in the eyes of God is available to them. Take a cue from Jesus. Meet a physical need, especially for those who are weak, broken, marginalized, forgotten about, so that they can hear about the spiritual needs that God can address. Number two. Those who have experienced God's kingdom risk health and reputation so that the forgotten are favored. If Jesus inaugurated an eternal kingdom in which the forgotten are favored, and if Jesus modeled for you and me, those of us who call ourselves Christians, which means little Christ, by the way, Jesusites, many Jesuses, if, if, if that's what we call ourselves, then we have to model ourselves after Jesus' life. And since he risked health and reputation in order to favor the forgotten, he reached out and touched a leper. He cared for somebody and put his health at risk. He put his reputation at risk. He, 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 he put uh, following convention at risk. He rejected that and said, uh, no, you're more important to me and those who have experienced God's kingdom do the same. They risk health and reputation so that the forgotten are favored. And you think to yourself, maybe, you know, gosh, risk health? Really? Like, really, that's what I'm supposed to do? Yes. Of the 10 people who were treated for Ebola in the United States, five of them were Christian missionaries. At least three others of them were also Christians. 70% of the 10 Ebola patients, so seven of the 10 who were treated in the U.S. were mission, or treated in the U.S. were missionaries and medical workers whose Christian faith led them to take on the burden of risk to personal safety and health. They took on a punishing workload. They took on the loneliness of service to terrifyingly ill outcasts. Each of these people voluntarily took on this service to those who needed them most, and they did it because they were followers of Jesus. This is Dr. Kent Brantley. Brantley. If you see on the top there, Kent Brantley is affiliated with an organization called Samaritan's Purse. We partner with Samaritan's Purse at Christmas to do Operation Christmas Child. If you look on the bottom of that, it says, the Brantleys making, his, making known his deeds among the people, serving in where? Liberia, West Africa. Dr. Brantley was serving in Liberia, West Africa, and he contracted Ebola last year. Dr. Brantley said this, after being treated, after being, uh, you know, being treated for Ebola and coming out the other side, he says, as I lay in my bed in Liberia for the following nine days after being uh, diagnosed, getting sicker and weaker each day, I prayed that God would help me to be faithful even in my illness. And I prayed that in my life or in my death, he would be glorified. Nina Pham, Amber Vinson, 
they treated a Liberian national called Thomas Duncan, who was another Christian. Thomas Duncan treated a woman who was pregnant, who had contracted Ebola. Both of these young women contracted Ebola. Why? Because they loved Jesus and they went to the ends of the earth and risked personal health and reputation so that the forgotten would be favored. After the fact, Amber Vincent said this, nursing is what I do. I could never see a patient that needs help and not do everything I can to help those who were in need. And both of them did it because they loved Jesus. Kent Branley did it because he loves Jesus. They put themselves on the line and risked health and reputation so that the forgotten would be favored. Question number two for personal application. What is God asking you to risk so that the forgotten would be favored? What is God calling you to risk so that the forgotten are favored? For some of you, you're going, you know what? I don't want to move to Liberia. Maybe God's not calling you there, but guess what? Maybe he is. We've got people in our congregation that have already been sent out to very, very difficult areas in the world and are putting personal health and reputation on the line in order to favor the forgotten. And we're about to send a couple of more out here in a couple of months. Maybe God is calling you too to that area of the world and putting personal health on the line and and reputation on the line in order to bring favor and grace to those who have been forgotten about, marginalized, the weak, the sick, the lonely. But maybe it's not physical health. Again, maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's what your friends think about you. Maybe this is what God is asking you to risk in order to favor the forgotten. Finally, and we'll conclude with this, those who have experienced God's kingdom will stop at nothing to get their friends to the feet of Jesus. Those those who have seen God's kingdom for what it really is, and those who have seen the kingdom of this world for what it really is, for those who share in kingdom values and they know that the eternal is greater than the temporal, that they know that the spiritual is greater than the physical, that they know others are greater than me, that those are the things I should be focusing on, that thing that lasts forever, the spiritual side of me and others. For those who have adopted those kingdom values, they will stop at nothing to get their friends to the feet of Jesus. I love the attitude of these men who bring this paralytic before Jesus. Don't you? Like, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but like, have you ever like pulled into a movie theater or somewhere and you see a bunch of cars in the parking lot and you go, no, nope, not today. <laughs> I'll rent a movie. Could you imagine these guys like coming up to this house and seeing people pouring out of the house and they can barely even hear Jesus from where they're at? Could you imagine like if it were me, I might look down at my friend and go, well, we'll try to track him down somewhere else. I mean, he goes from city to city and so we'll try to track him down somewhere else. Just it's bad luck, unfortunate. We just can't get you in there. That's not what they do. Why? Because they've adopted kingdom values because they know Jesus for who he is. They know what he can bring. Uh, healing, cleansing, forgiveness. And so they say, nothing will stop us. They come around the back of this house, they crawl up ladders, and they start digging through a roof and lower their friend down to the feet of Jesus. Those who have experienced God's kingdom will stop at nothing to get their friends to the feet of Jesus. One last question and we'll be done. Who do I know that needs to be at the feet of Jesus? Who do you know in your life 
that's been forgotten about. That coworker, that friend, that family member who's maybe a little socially awkward. That, that friend in your life that's gay. That friend in your life that's promiscuous. That friend in your life that struggles with substance abuse issues. That friend in your life that can't really hold a conversation all that well. That friend in your life that seems to go from job to job all the time. That, that friend in your life that's always kind of checked out emotionally a little bit or has issues from childhood or whatever, and they desperately need to be at the feet of Jesus so Jesus can come alongside and address spiritual needs. Who do you know? And I guarantee you, if you think about it, you know somebody that desperately needs to be at the feet of Jesus. And for those of us who have seen the kingdom for what it is, who value the spiritual over the the physical, who value the eternal over the temporal, and who value others over ourselves, we stop at nothing to get our friends to the feet of Jesus. Let's conclude just with stating that bottom line truth one more time, is that when Jesus shows up on the scene, he inaugurates an eternal kingdom in which the forgotten are favored. And because we're his body, And because we're part of the kingdom of God, this is our mission to carry that kingdom forward. Let's pray together. God, we asked three kind of key questions today as we took a look at the heart of God, as we took a look at uh, your son Jesus and, 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 and what he did and how he worked and what he valued. So God, would you bring to mind in this moment, God, if you're calling us to risk something so the forgotten are favored, would you bring that to mind? God, if you're calling us to scratch through a roof to get a friend to the feet of Jesus, would you bring that friend to mind right now? And God, if you're opening up doors of opportunity for us to meet physical needs so that we can help someone meet you so that their spiritual needs, those more important needs, can be met, God, bring that opportunity to mind right now and give us the courage, the fortitude, God, and the perseverance to follow through as we continue to push this kingdom forward that you began 2,000 years ago in which the forgotten are favored. Thanks, Jesus, for this time in your word, and we ask that it would transform us from the inside out, that it would begin with our heart and work itself out in our behavior. In Christ's name, God's people together said, amen. As we conclude this morning, I'm just going to ask the ushers to stand and go to the back. Um, We take one Sunday a month, the first Sunday of every month, and we receive what's called a benevolent offering. It's an opportunity for us just one Sunday a month to give uh, over and above our normal giving uh, to help and come alongside people in our community that have needs. It's just a great opportunity even now to put to uh, put into action what we just talked about, caring for those around us that, that maybe have been forgotten about. And so uh, we just take all of, the, all of what we collect even now, all of what we receive even now, set it aside for people that come into the office that have needs that we can come alongside and help. Invite you to give generously uh, to, to, to this offering. And, and if you're new with us, again, please pass that bag on by you. Your presence here with us is gift enough. Let's pray as our ushers come forward and then our, our worship team is gonna lead us in the doxology. God, thanks for an opportunity to give. 
Thanks for an opportunity to worship in this way. God, take these gifts now and uh, these temporal things and do something eternal with them. In Christ's name, amen.